Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Naturevisity Podcast. Today, I have the distinguished and honored guest of being with a good friend of mine and a healthy mentor that I, I like to call healthy mentors. I think there's mentors and then there's healthy mentors. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be my uh, buddy, Braden Dalen A. And Braden, thanks so much for being on and doing this with me. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, so I'm excited. Um, so we just want you to tell your story and how you got into the world of outdoor education. And yeah. for me, um, I remember there was this moment where, uh, Mike was talking about one of our students and he was talking about like how you look up to people and Mike mentioned, he's like, you know, even though you're younger than me. And I thought like, man, that's so true. Like how often we get into things and we look to people who are just younger than us. But in my perception, you're younger than me. I'm just telling your story here a little bit, but I've always felt like you're so much older than me because of your wisdom. <laughs> I'm always like, man, Braden, you got to talk to Braden. And they're always like, how old is he? I'm like, I, I think he's 30. <laughs> they're like, what? No. no. Yeah. Well, that was many years ago. Yeah. But anyway, uh, thanks so much for being here. And I've always looked up to you and I am so excited to have all of these people hear your story and to have them hear what it is that you can share with the world about outdoor education. Mm, appreciate that. Um, yeah, so it's it's funny because me becoming like an outdoor skills instructor is is kind of like it was unexpected for me. Um, it was not a thing that I knew that I was going to be getting into, and even just teaching in general was not a thing that I knew that I was going to be getting into. Um, so I was born in Glendale Heights, Illinois, and when I grew up, and you know, I just grew up in a regular suburb. Um, most of my outdoor time was just playing sports outside, um, yeah. like playing. Um, we called it sneaker sneaker, but essentially hide and go seek tag over like three blocks of my neighborhood and doing like running through people's backyards and sneaking through all the bushes. And there'd be like 20 kids in the neighborhood that are playing across the whole neighborhood. And it, you know, whether or not you had kids, we were going through your yard and everybody were there fences mm -hmm. that you just hopped the fences. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah, no one got that disgruntled to, to this day. I can go over an eight foot fence in like half a second. Nice. Um, That's good training. It, it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, fences everywhere. Yeah. And I had, I had a full-time like babysitter nanny. That's my parent. My parents were split and I lived with my mom and they were basically like her and her husband. I called them Nana and Papa were like my grandparents. Um, and they're the ones who got me to do outdoor stuff at all because my mom is what you call you know, an indoorsy person. So, so is my dad. Like that's my, my mom went camping for the last time. I think when she was eight years old, they went to a, they went to Yellowstone and while she was in the tent with her sisters she woke up and my aunt Gail, the oldest sister, had her hand over both my mom and my aunt Lynn's mouths because a bear had put its head into the tent and was licking aunt Lynn's feet. Oh my gosh. Um, and then it wow. like left the tent and like tore through all their coolers and all that stuff. It was a black and bear. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. And then made its way out and was gone and everything was fine. But they never went camping again. Wow. That was, that was the last time that they ever went camping. So Nana and Papa used to take me to a place called Little Grassy. That's, um, I want to say it's near Joliet in, in Illinois. And it was a little campground and it, we would go in an RV. But Papa was the one who taught me to go fishing. He taught me to do gardening and stuff like that. So like, you know, making fires. I, I had a little bit of that growing up. Um, but I didn't sleep in a tent for the first time until I was 19 years old. Wow. Uh, that was at a hippie festival, and that's a very different version of camping, uh, to say the least. <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Um, so I didn't even really start doing outdoor stuff or, like, things that involved physical skills until I, I moved to Texas. So I was born in Illinois. I was there until I was 11, and then we moved to New Jersey. And I stayed in Jersey until I was about 23 um, before I came down to Austin to start working for a nonprofit called The Shire, um, which was Sustainable Habitats Incorporating Renewable Education. Wow. Um, and that was on a property called The Hundred Acre Wood. So I lived at The Hundred Acre Wood and I worked for The Shire um, and I was a literary character for a little bit. Um, but that seems so fitting. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great way to get yeah. into survival skills. Um, so. When I got down here, like I couldn't swing a hammer, you know, like I didn't, I didn't have like, I didn't have particular skills related to the physical world. Um, I always liked talking to people and stuff like that. And that was all fun. But at the Shire, we started doing um, field trips. 
for like the Kip Discovery School and stuff like that, kids would come out and we would have them building cob and like, you know, throwing mud together and throwing it against walls. And that was always a blast. And I ended up like coordinating a lot of the education that we were going to do and running a lot of it. And I had never taught before, you know, I like helped kids in marching band when I was in high school, but that was like, you know, my only experience, like mentoring anything. Um, and it was a blast. Uh, that was a great time. And that nonprofit ran for about three years before we kind of fell apart because we had no strategy for funding and no money because the oldest person involved was 25 years old. And none of us had any clue what we were doing. No business degree background. No, yeah. no, no business uh, mar- back- yeah. yeah, no business background, no marketing background, yeah. no like, you know, there was no revenue Investors stream of any kind. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, it was fun while it lasted. And then eventually it stopped being a thing. Is not going on at all today? No, yeah. no. Um, and when that was over, I ended up as a milkman for, for about, I don't know, a little bit less than a year. Um, and that was a job I got very randomly, but I hated that job. Um, and I was on the phone with our, our good friend, Mike, um, and I was essentially just like complaining about my life. And I was like, you know, and my boss is this and that and the other thing. And like, this is, this doesn't feel like good work. I'm not contributing anything. Like, yes, I'm making money, but like, uh, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not doing anything that I, that I give a shit about, right? you know? And Mike was like, well, you know, if you hate being a milkman so much, why don't you just come live in the woods? And there I was you like, go. Okay, do- yeah, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do, do that. that. Um, and that was, we had that conversation in February of 2012. And I was like, okay, well, I just need a little bit of time to tie up some loose ends and then I'm, I'm coming up. Um, and I had visited him at the school the previous summer and taken a like little earth living weekend, but it was like, it was me and his little brother, Greg and his cousin, uh, Danny. Um, and then a couple other random students, but it was mostly, it was like a Mike and his friends class that we got to have. So we did that and it was a blast, um, and spent some time in the woods. And then, uh, the following year I ended up back there in, in May, um, after we talked in February. So three months later, I got there like right before my birthday, I showed up for my first, um, earth living five day class, the class started at 7 a.m. and I arrived at the school at 3.45 in the morning and then just passed out on a couch and woke up in the classroom. And the guy who ran the school, Mike Douglas, was like, oh, all right, good, you're on time. Nice. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally on time. Um, and we did that class from there. And then I was there for just shy of two years before I ended up leaving um, at MPSS, and that was when I learned all of the, all of the things and I helped with a program at a Montessori school and I helped, um, a man named Ira Mishud, who's a principal now, who's a phenomenal mentor is one of my biggest mentors, both for storytelling and for just mentoring in general. Um, we would do summer camps with him and that was when we learned how like the eight shields model works with like the flow of the energetic of a day and people holding different things. And Ira was just always phenomenal with it. Yeah. His summer camp, all, everything was always so smooth it was always really easy whenever there was like resolution stuff that needed to happen. Ira could talk to a kid for like 45 seconds and everything would be fine and they would be laughing and smiling and things would be fixed again. And he never had to, you know, he, he never had to break a sweat about any of it. And he's like a uncle Yeti was his nature name. Um, and he's like a big, you know, a big dude. He's like six, three, six, four, like over 200 pounds. Like he's a, he's a large man. Um, and I think, that lends itself to a little bit of him just having like a natural authority that goes on. Sure. Also he's uncle Yeti. Um, <laughs> but he was always just so relaxed. There was never a situation that like threw him off. Um, and working with him, like it taught both Mike and I a whole bunch about who you have to be while you're with kids, um, in order for them to have a good experience or for them to feel safe in the experience and for them to know that there's somebody at the top that they trust for anything that could happen. Yeah. And it just, it makes life way, way easier. Um, but yeah, my time in MPSS was the thing that was my inspiration for survival skills, but it really just happened because I was upset about my life and my best friend was like, well, why don't you change your whole life then? Yeah. I was like, Okay, yeah, that sounds good. I mean, that's also, I I was 25 when I went there. 25. Um, When I was 23, when I got to Texas, it was from a similar conversation with a different very good friend of mine, and I was complaining about my time in New Jersey and not feeling connected to anything that I was doing. And um, 
he had met someone who was starting a sustainable commune um, that was for the Shire um, and was like, you have to just come down here then. Like, if you don't like it there, just come down here. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Change, change my whole life. Got it. Um, and I haven't had to do that again since. Um, <laughs> landing, Thank God. Yeah, landing in, in wilderness skills has made has made me feel connected to what I'm doing. And so I don't yeah. have the moment where I'm like, what am I even... Am I helping anything? Sure. Um, so I haven't had to have one of those moments in, in a while, but that's primitive skills. Whenever I, I have students that are like, that want to talk about, oh, well, I'll never, you know, I'm never going to be as good as you. And I'm like, I didn't start until I was 25. Yeah. You have 20 years on me. Right. Like, yeah. so, so, so much time. I tell the kids all the time, like, poor is the student who doesn't surpass his master. Yeah. And they're like, oh, challenge time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to be better than you. Yeah. Which is good. You know, what's funny is, um, forgive me, uh, the the listeners, I hope you forgive me. Um, I've brought this up five million times on this podcast, but you know what icky guy is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So you found your icky guy. Yeah. So that's, I think, the goal, in my opinion, for any educator. You want children to be able to discover that on their own. Mm-hmm. What is their purpose for being on this planet? Yep. You know, contributing, yes, you know, making something back in um, community um, a- a- appreciation. That's what my, my friend told me. He goes, you need to stop looking at money like it's money. He's like, you need to look at them like certificates of appreciation. Yeah, it's just energetic exchange. Yeah. You know, and that's all that's, all that's happening. Um, uh, I have, I based on my background is going through all sorts of hippie communities and stuff like that. I was on at least four four of them over a 10-year period when I was trying to do the commune thing, and just so many people have such a negative relationship to money, and money's not the problem. Like, it's not, money is not bad or good inherently. It's stuff that you do with it, and there's so many people um, who have uh, a relationship where they feel dirty asking for it, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's not a good thing mm-hmm. that's feeling dirty asking for money is what makes you undervalue yourself right and that just cascades and snowballs into a thing where you don't have what you need and then you're not being paid what you feel or know that you deserve but you're not being paid that because you're not asking for it right and it just creates a feedback loop of stress and resentment for everything that's going on and it's really just ask ask for what you know that you are worth um or, all the time or change what you're doing yeah that's I uh, somebody told me a story one time about the, I don't know if you've heard this story about the guy in the machine factory and this whole factory shut down. They call this guy and he comes out and he's like, uh, and he looks around and he's like, walks around for a little bit and he finally comes up to this one little area and he takes out the screwdriver and he like fixes this screw and the whole thing starts running and the people are like, what the heck, you know, what? Okay, great. So you, you fixed everything. What do you charge? And he's like, $10,000. They're like, you just turned a screw. They're, he's like, I need an itemized, you know, itinerary, this, that, and the other for, for this. So he goes, okay. So he goes, turning screw, $1. And knowing exactly which screw to turn, 9999 <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's what happens to yeah. certain people in life is you get to a point where you are the best because of the icky guy thing. You yeah. went with passion. You know, yeah. you were good at it. You kept going at it. You saw that it benefited the world. It was giving you hopefully some return and financial or some kind of communal reward. But yeah, knowing exactly which screw to turn, and is room enough for you to go, I am worth this, and yeah. I am okay saying that I am worth this. I had a problem with that in the beginning. Yeah. I didn't want to I mean, charge me too. what I was charging for yeah. families. I thought it was outrageous. I was like, that's insane to charge families, you know, thousands of dollars for these, ho- these homeschool programs. But then I was like, wait, you kind of have to because there's price points. And we're providing certain things like materials and archery equipment and land and space and just all these things that go into running this thing. I mean, the overhead is always more than we end up expecting it to be. Always. First point. But then there's also the idea that like people aren't just paying you for the labor that you're putting in in a moment. They're paying you for like years of training and experience that make what you do efficient or special or effective. Yeah. And it's, there was a, 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 post that I've seen a bunch of times about a, a guy who was going in for a welding job and he did uh he did two welds for them um because the the posted the posted thing was 25 to 50 dollars an hour uh based on experience and he did two welds and one of them was beautiful and the other one was awful and it was what happened with the second one and he said well the first one is 50 dollars an hour the second one's 25 that's right uh, and that's you know 
Yeah. Yeah. I can, what you're gonna I, can, get. I can do this, but if you're not going to compensate me, I'll, I'll just do it for what you're paying for. And that's right. fine. And see, and then there you get the culture thing of like, well, how dare you disrespect me like that? They, they, tur- they turn it around on you. They make you the, the bad guy. And yeah. that's the problem where, you know, I think one time you told me about um, educating children just in general about like the power dynamic. You're like, there is no power dynamic. There's yeah. no struggle at all. Like I'm not, you know, I don't know, lack of a better word, in control here, but I am the facilitator, mm-hmm. you know? And it's, I want to just say that to those folks is like, you're coming to me for a service. Like I am the progenitor of this whole thing in essence you know like <laughs> service wouldn't exist if unless it was for me so i don't know <clears throat> i guess it gets into the the disrespect uh, angle truthfully is they're just like i don't have respect for what you're doing truthfully well and, um, i mean the whole the whole our whole society in general places a very low value on educating uh, yeah. education in general really uh, does part of that i think is because Public school systems are are free or are paid, paid for by tax dollars and then are designed by people who are not educators. So it comes up with all sorts of problems when you have legislators that are attempting to legislate what education is supposed to look like. Oh, it's yeah. not going to look that good. Yeah. And there's teachers all over the place who want to make huge changes to education that would make it more effective, but they can't do it because the legislators who don't know anything about education will only say the things that they feel good about, which tends to be more standardized tests. Yeah. There's teachers all over the country calling for high schools that start later so that it can match up with the actual sleep cycles of teenagers so that they can wake up at an appropriate time and go to bed at an appropriate time and get the right amount of sleep and be focused for the day. There's educators all over the place that want to have free lunch for kids who don't get to eat enough food or even free breakfast available for kids who are underprivileged so that they can have enough energy to be a productive student inside of a school system. But a legislator doesn't know that the intimate relationship between supporting someone physically and their ability to be successful in education. So education is not designed in our mass produced version of it to actually support people to succeed. So people see problems with it. So they don't value it because they don't think it's doing what it's supposed to. And it's not, Yeah. but it's also not allowed to. And that's, <clears throat> excuse me. And that's interesting. Cause through that, you kind of begin understanding like, Oh, this is by design. Mm-hmm. You know, well, this. I'm, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I try to keep with the, like, never attribute to malice what can be attributed to incompetence. Um, but when you look at countries that value education, all their outcomes are better. That's, you know, like the Netherlands, regular teachers have master's degrees and the people with master's degrees are applying for those jobs because they pay six figures. And that's if you want better education, you have to compensate people better for education. And then the people who are passionate about education need to be able to have self-determination in what it looks like to create a successful program. Yeah. Having an extra star test is not going to help. Do you think that, that what they're doing is they're making it just so self-defeating along the way that people give up? Because that's what I think happened. Like, I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I met this lady. She was selling lemonade. And she was like, yeah, I was a teacher for 20 years and I was trying to change all this stuff. And... She's like, I, then COVID hit and I thought, okay, maybe I can change it now that it's like, I don't know, been t- t- the wind's taken out of its sails. And then she's like, nope. She's like, still nothing happened. She's like, I literally sell lemonade. I was like, wow. I was like, you just gave up. She's like, yeah. She's like, cause I couldn't do anything. I couldn't make this work. She's like, but she was there at my booth, you know, the nature versities booth talking about education. And we sat there for five or 10 minutes, just talking about how, kids are educated and she's like because i told her i said you know this is a kinesthetic approach to environmental education we're just it's just all hands-on all the time and she's just like i just don't get it she's like i don't understand how people can't look at that and see that that works and it's like but maybe what they're doing is they're going okay well what resources is it going to take to do this for millions of children you know, we've compacted mm-hmm. them all. It's like yeah. going from a from an unsustainable farm of chickens are all tight in cages to like, okay, right. well, where's my land to well, allow this to take place? And like the idea for regular schooling has like really early roots in free childcare so that people could go work their jobs. Yeah. And that the labor force could be increased because children would be taken care of at a school for a day. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't. Like the design was not, we're going to create whole, educated, wonderful citizens to improve the state of our country. It was, we're going to put kids in 
this box for a little while so that their parents can go be productive members of machines and then everyone can come home at the same time, which is why kids go to school based on when their parents go to work and not based on what research says about when they should be going to sleep and when they should be waking up and when their most productive times of the day are and stuff like that because it's not it's not education and child-centric focused on its creation. Yeah. That's- well, I remember in <clears throat> going to Deer Park Middle School, I had... I went to at 8 a.m. and then at, at McNeil High School, I went at 9 a.m. <laughs> they pushed it back an hour, but I st- I don't know. What do you think you would have done better in high school if you went at 10 a.m. or what time are we talking here? Um, I I got to high school at 7:20 in the morning, um, and as a teenager, that's not when you're ready to go. By the time I was uh, driving myself to school, I probably missed first period like mm. 30 times when I yeah. was in high school, and I would get to school at like. I don't know, like eight thirty at a at a time that I was in trouble for being there for, but also worked a lot better for my body. That was yeah. just when I could get it together and go. Um, yeah, and I definitely feel like you know education is a thing that is so unique to each child. Every right. child learns and you know develops in different ways. I mean, we definitely have kids who just I don't know why, but their parents send them and they want to do other things and they just try to find ways to like get us to send them home. And you know, where we've, um, had struggles in all these different areas. And so I wonder, I'm like, I, you know, that maybe what happened was they developed on a computer and they just want to keep going that way. Well, and there's like, there's the multiple intelligences thing where we talk about some people are kinesthetic learners. Some people are auditory learners. Some people are visual learners and a traditional school setup and the way that like, that teaching takes place is really, 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 really slated towards the benefit of visual learners. Yeah. Auditory learners are in second place because they get to hear the didactic format that's going on. And then kinesthetic learners are just screwed. Yeah. And that's learning. But kinesthetic learning seems like the biggest chunk. Well, the biggest part of learning like multisensory experiences are how we get information to stay into our brains. Right. But everything is designed from that didactic regurgitated method because they have to pass a test or the school will lose funding. And the only way that they know how to do that is to make sure that you can repeat this set of facts if someone asks them to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're just we're going to talk for a long time and I'm going to write some stuff down. And if you learn that way, it's going to go really well. And if you don't learn that way, something is wrong with you. Yeah, there's been all these studies coming out lately saying that, you know, that girls are just surpassing boys in every last thing, graduating high school more, better testing, graduating college more, getting into colleges more. And they are, you know, saying that basically this style of education that we have currently, like, really does work well for girls. But back in the day, we didn't have the data that said that because we weren't allowing girls into these institutions of education. Mm-hmm. But now that they are, you know, and, and I don't know if it's literally just men giving up or boys giving up, but like, Maybe we need two different styles of education. Not that they shouldn't be co-ed, but I, I don't. I mean, there should be millions of styles of education, truthfully. But um, I don't know. It's it's definitely seeming like things are going in a negative direction. No matter how much money you throw at it, and no matter how much you want to continue to standardize these tests, it's like sponge behavior. Have you ever read anything by John Taylor Gatto? Mm-mm. John Taylor Gatto is that guy who wrote uh, "Dumbing Us Down." And he's a uh, New York teacher, and he's won New York Teacher of the Award Award for like, I don't know, four or five times. And one time, I think he had an acceptance speech. He was like, no, this doesn't work. He's like, I'm up here accepting this award, telling you it doesn't actually work. I've written a bunch of books about it. It doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, well, it's like the Michael yeah. Jordan speech of retirement. Remember yeah. that? Mm. And uh, yeah, I feel somebody who's been doing it for 20 years should probably probably know a thing or two and so i don't know uh, educators listening out there check out that book it's just about compulsory schooling which is what we have currently as Mm -hmm. our modern day institutions of education for children who go to public school and i I don't even like that word anymore public school i just like to call them government schools Mm. (laughs) sorry Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean that's you know that's that's where their generation comes from well and like academic outcomes for girls improve at a girls only school and they go down in a mixed environment for girls. And then boys actually do better in co-ed environments than they do in boys-only schools. Oh, see? Um, and I think a big that part of that is 
there is a significant lack of men in education. And there, as educators. As, as educators. Yeah. Um, and there's just not those teachers, like when boys have male teachers, there is a different understanding of the experience of being a boy on your way in and what somebody needs or doesn't need or when you can work with them from a place of understanding because you've been through it. Yeah. And that's, I have tons of teachers that I've worked with that when boys are, want to be rough or physical or wrestle or play gun games that involve pretend guns and stuff like that, the where they just get shut down over and over and over and right. over again. You're not yeah. allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do that. And in general, like if, if that is not given a healthy expression place, it starts to manifest outside of a healthy expression place. Yeah. And you know, it, I, I had someone that I, that I work with, um, we got to the point where she was okay with the boys playing gun games. If the guns shot rainbows. <laughs> um, and that's with that stuff. How did with, you feel about that? I, you know, it, I, I took it as a win. That's the only thing that I want to get across w- with that stuff is it doesn't, what matters about the game is two things. Rule zero, everyone who's playing the game needs to have fun playing the game. Yeah. And the other one is everyone who's playing the game needs to have agreed to have played the game. So if you're running, running around doing fake gun games at people who really don't want to be involved in that, you need to change your expression so that you're doing it inside of a healthy container where you're not damaging somebody else or harassing them with what you're doing. Right. It's not, it's not the action and it's not the desire for the action. It's like the expression of that action is what requires a, a certain amount of moving around and some creativity to it. <clears throat> um, our friend Kristen um, Kristen Gerhard was doing Freedom Fridays for uh, the Whole Life Learning Center at their second campus when that was a thing for a little bit. And she had a group that was mostly boys, and they're like four, five, six years old, and they wanted to wrestle all the time. Um, so what she did, instead of uh, constantly fighting them about not wrestling with each other, is for like 30 minutes of the day, she took all of the pillows in the room and she made a little wrestling ring for them. And she said, you can't pull hair, you can't bite, you can't punch. You can't scratch, you can't kick, and but you can wrestle and you're going to have this time and this is going to be your wrestling time and we'll do that like when you start to get the wiggles, you can get all that stuff out and we're going to make sure that it's safe and relaxed and I'm going to stop anything that feels uncomfortable to me that's going over the top and it made her life so much easier and all of those boys had a better time because they were able to get that stuff out and this isn't to say that like girls don't need physical play and stuff but when you're looking at the tendencies like on the playground there are way less girls tackling each other. Um, yeah, yeah, clearly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then all like being tackled by the boys. <clears throat> Not at that in, age. In most cases, that is that is accurate, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, so it's just because there's so few men that are in, especially early childhood education, those like expressions that come out don't feel comfortable to their educators. And when educators don't feel comfortable with something that's going on, it is their job to be like, Hey, I don't feel good about this. We need to like, stop this. Yeah. But they don't have colleagues to be like, Hey, actually let's figure out how to, how to rework this around and make this a, a situation that, that can be a positive instead of a negative. And that's one of the uh, permaculture principles that I love a lot uh, is fractures into features. When you can find something that you look, you look at and you're like, this is a flaw in the system. You, you, it's your responsibility to figure out how to change that flaw into a benefit for a system. Yeah. So like a farmer has a field that's taking on way too much water and they can't plant inside of that field. They need to figure out how to respect that as water storage or what crops they can put into that field that will actually thrive in being in that space that potentially that's that they can only grow in that area because that area, while not suitable for everything else that you're doing has its own purpose. Yeah. And you find that fracture and you turn it into a feature. Like when somebody gets a dent in their car and then they take a Sharpie and they make it into a fun face. Like <laughs> it goes from being a fracture in the car to being like an, oh my God, that is a cute feature. And it's just doing that little bit of judo. Do you think that, I, 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 first of all, I call that the Mentos effect. You remember that? You remember that? <laughs> <laughs> you remember that commercial? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So, uh, but do you think that the reason why that doesn't happen, because it sounds like what you're describing to me is the ability to be fluid as an educator. For, well, first of all, that that first that men should be more involved in the edu- educational process, but then the ability to be fluid. And for me, 
I want to find an institution or an educational facility that is so ingrained in that fluidity, but is also very successful, but not necessarily on a small scale, meaning, you know, there's SOPs, there's like, you know, things that you do to make success happen and then more success grow. So I think the either, either or is to create an, a place, an educational institution that has these massive SOPs and you don't divert from them or... And the reason why is because of the training of the people working there. Or you train the people massively in the ability to be fluid. Yeah. But that's such a niche skill. I think that's why these businesses don't grow and these schools don't thrive because the turnover rate, like for instance, for us, you know, is like we dump a lot of what you mean you've been to our training things and then they receive this but then I don't know what it is that we need to do to keep them prolonged in the development of these young kids lives you know I want to see this kid year after year after year not because of financial gain but because it is I've seen it personally year after year after year when I was just by myself and I see the development that takes place I Mm -hmm. see the magic that happens I see this kid turn from woe is me I can't do anything in life I can't throw a ball I can't catch a ball to you know ducking and dodging and jumping juniper branches and going all yep. out. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, what is the big preventative to having these successful fluid type learning environments? That's, uh, I think there's a huge, there's a huge amount of uh, fear around liability and taking liability on. And that's like in Texas. Now oh, that makes total, so much sense. Or having my insurance in Texas, I'm not supposed to have kids barefoot ever. Wow. Um, oh, I wonder if that's my insurance too. Check in. Um, and that's, there are times when we're teaching fox walking and stuff like that, where I have to look for a really, really safe area in order to let that take place. Because in Texas, it does, there are lots of potential hazards for being. Oh, barefoot. yeah. And if I had my kids barefoot every time they were like, Mr. Braden, can I take off my shoes? And I have to be like, nah, you can't take off your shoes right now. Yeah. Um, there could be cactuses and fire ants and snakes and mesquite thorns and all sorts of stuff going on. Um, like in Maine, uh, none of that is a thing. Uh, there's not, there's not venomous snakes to be spoken about. There's not fire ants to be spoken about. There's not uh, like Hawthorne is like the only pokey thing that you're going to run into for real. And that's pretty rare. It's also not like, and dropping needles all over the place. You know, even just ash junipers hurt kids' feet or those little goat heads all the time. Oh, yeah. And it just, Baby ash junipers are a nightmare. Yeah. That, uh, you kick one of those things, at those little micro needles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, the, you're right about the way the mesquite branches break off because yeah. of the decay. And, yeah. dude, I've, I've had one of those go right through my chaco. Yep, all the way through like the no, shoe in no a foot. Bar. And you're like, okay, great. So now my foot is going to be sore for the next 10 days Yeah, every time I step. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Stoked, stoked about that. And it is unfortunate because it's, you know, you don't want to tell the kids no when they're inspired. You know, it's like, I want to be barefoot. And I'm like, I want you to be barefoot. Yeah. But I also want you to be safe. And right. you're right. So, yeah, I can see that being the biggest barrier to the lack of... Yeah, just let's willy nilly this up yeah, today in nature. Risky, risky play, <laughs> like risky play, is uh, something that is very, very important for children to go through. Yeah. But the problem is that holding space for risky play as someone who is hired or is professionally responsible for them opens up a huge liability risk if something goes wrong. And even the most understanding parent in the world, if they, if you're like, well, I was kind of letting them climb trees and we went further than we were supposed to today and that kid falls out of a tree and God forbid seriously injures themselves, like yeah. you are going to get sued. Yeah. Um, there is no one in the world who could blame a parent for going through that if they have a traumatic event with their own child. That those That is a totally appropriate reaction to have. Yeah. But the problem is that because risky play is so important, it becomes something that parents have to be able to support on their own. And there's so many times with kids, I have kids at one of my programs who want to play tackle football all the time. And I have to sit them down and be like, guys, I played tackle football as a kid a lot. You know where I didn't play it? (laughs) At school. (laughs) Like we played on the weekends, we played all summer, all the time, and there's certain activities that it is only safe for you to do when your parents are in charge of you, because there is risk involved in this activity. And if I take on that risk, not only am I being irresponsible, I'm, I'm setting myself up 
for an emotional reaction that is an appropriate emotional reaction based on the negative side of the risk. Yeah. And risky play is absolutely necessary and parents need to be able to be a part of that taking place and holding the container for that because kids need it, but it literally can't be something that an hired service can be asked to take on. Mm. Um, there's a, a guy that I work with for uh, a different program, Fab Abundance, that I do stuff with, who was a, a girl soccer coach for a long time, and he wrote a book called Let Her Play. And he does uh, sessions with parents a lot where he talks about how to hold space for risky play and what you should know about holding space for risky play and like how to like sit in your discomfort a little bit and when to jump in and be like, okay, this is too much, or how to check in with them to make sure they're still feeling safe and like being able to hold that container for risky play. Yeah. Because part of the moving the kids into regular educational programs as they develop and get older is there's less and less time when parents are actually hands-on working with them while they're doing kinesthetic activities. So they don't have any experience working with that or they don't even know how well their child will move in certain situations and it creates an obvious worry because they're biologically wired to be like, you're not allowed to die! Ah!" Yeah. Um, So parents need to be able to have the support for risky play for their kids and that is very, very rare um, because even helping teachers learn where to find their lines is a difficult thing. And for parents, there's different mo- emotional investment and, and they have jobs and stuff. Yeah. Um, so the kids need it and intelligently it can't be provided by hired services. So I, you know, I don't know, I don't know how to make a great solution for that. You know, there's family programs that I work with and then like in fire scouts, my scouting program, that's a full family program. The parents are invited to all the campouts, and during the campouts, the parents have their own instructor, and the kids have the kids have the rest of the staff. So during a campout, either myself or Aaron will be working with the parents, and the rest of the staff is in charge of the kids' programming during the campout. And when I'm doing parent programming, we're talking about knife safety, and we're talking about fire safety, and we're talking about how to be in the woods and what's okay and when to, like, step in and stop a thing, and it's really, really important because if the parents aren't trained, nothing changes. Yeah. No, never. And that's, ever. it doesn't, I could teach a kid all sorts of stuff um, about being outside and being in the woods and all of these lovely things. And if their parents don't support those behaviors, the likelihood that it continues into any further part of their life is very, very low. Yeah. And that's a problem. And that's one of the reasons Fire Scouts is set up the way that it did is because Mike and I were talking about, you know, what we would do about this program. And we kept having this thing come up where both of us would have students come up and say, Oh, I'm really excited to be in wilderness class, Mr. Braden. Cause that means I get to do this. And like, okay, what do you mean? We're like, well, my parents don't let me touch plants or, Oh, well, my wow. parents aren't going to let me start a fire. And it's like, it's okay, good thing they said that. Well, your parents need to, <laughs> cause we're going to have a talk. Yeah. yeah. Um, we need uh, to figure out how to make space for that. Do me a favor. Just move this mic a little bit closer. Cause it's hard to, hmm. yeah, there you go. That's a little uh, better. Yeah. Better. Yeah. So it's, I, I think that, um, you know, the, I, I just, like I told you earlier, I got done doing this kid fest thing in New Braunfels all weekend and parents were like, you know, well, what, what is it that you do? And I tell them, what we do is we do dangerous things safely, mm, you know? That's a good way to put it. And I want them to feel confident in their children. Mm-hmm. That's the most important goal of mine is that they reestablish, you know, what you you talked about your grandparents. And I guarantee you they had confidence in you after they showed you how to do something. It's like, yeah, Braden's going fishing. Yeah, of course Braden's going fishing. I taught him how to fish. You know, it's like, yeah. so I want yeah. those to exist. And so what you told me about just now, about, oh, well, I'm not allowed to touch plants. I've had that same thing happen, and I have mm-hmm. to do the same thing with my parents, which is, hey, when a child is trying to educate you something they learned at school, you don't yeah. say no. Yeah. You know, you just take it like you would other educational yep. forms like okay let's do let's do, i didn't know that can we research that right. together to ensure that safety mm-hmm. is met and yep. oh you know it's just skipping rocks i didn't know you flicked your wrist at the end like okay that's the safety one right whatever but there's so many things that i think parents are just like no we're not even gonna why send them then what's the point right you know? uh, it's what well, they know that it's good for them to do 
and they also don't feel confident to hold space for it themselves. And like with the plant stuff, I talked to my parents about apps that they can use where they can identify the plants with. Because, oh yeah, that's a good one. You know, while there isn't, um, while there, it's not frequent that you are going to run into a plant that could kill you if you take a bite out of it. There are ones that could give you a pretty rough go. Yeah. You know, if a kid oh, runs yeah. into a poison hemlock, that's going to be a bad, bad situation. Sure. And they could confuse it for carrot very easily. Yeah. You know, um, so there are that those those feelings are valid, real feelings. And we're in a point of technology at this point with like a plant net app where you can be like, well, you know, take a picture, cross-reference it, make sure it's actually the, the right thing, and then we can go from there. And if you really want to get into this so that your kid is into plants and you feel safe about that, I'll tell you to get Thomas J. Elpel's Botany in a Day, and you can start yeah. learning about families oh, and what is one. safe for you to eat and what's not safe for you to eat and so that you can look and be like, okay, well, you know, none of those are poisonous, so that's we'll, we'll be fine to play with that. But... Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. I read a statistic about like people camping, like the amount of families who've never camped, mm-hmm. like under the stars, like outside in a tent. It's mm-hmm. shocking. It's like over sixty percent or something crazy yeah. like that. I don't know what exactly the number is, but I, I was I remember reading that and being like, no way. And I just don't know what else is the barrier to them getting outside. But the, I do know the moment they get out there, it's like a light switch goes on mm-hmm. and now they're able to see yep. and be like, Whoa, yep. you know? And, uh, I do think that education is the best way to do it other than, um, having some kind of catastrophe where you're forced right. to do it because yep. you'll adapt real fast mm-hmm. <laughs> in the moment you, yep. uh, you know, something like that happens, but I hope you would. And, um, I just want more people to be outside and I'm I'm always questioning people. What is the biggest barrier? What stops people from doing it? Um, So let's, let's chat about uh, things that you've taught over the years. What have been some of the favorite classes that you've had the ability to teach? Um, How long have you been teaching? I have been teaching for 13 years. Heck yeah, brother. Yeah. It's a long time. Um, So I think, uh, a lot of the things that I love teaching end up being a little bit all over the place. Um, within, uh, like the outdoor skill stuff. I mean, fire is always fun. Shelter is always fun. Anytime you see somebody get their first bow drill fire, yeah. it's like an amazing, amazing moment. Um, but my favorite things to teach are awareness skills. I'm like fox walking and teaching somebody how slow they can go. And mm. that's something that you can get, them to drop in for real and relax and sit down after like moving very slowly for a little bit and be like, how do you feel right now? You're calm. You're relaxed. Right. You know, you, this is always available. You can always do this and you can always drop in and relax and settle yourself back in. And that's fine. And there's a, the, the little, the trick that I do to get kids to actually slow down to the maximum amount that they can slow down because they're usually pretty resistant to the idea is when I'm teaching Fox walking after we go through the steps and like that, I'm like, okay, we're going to do a race. Mm. Okay? We're going to do a race. And I set the finish line like four feet from the kids. And I'm like, okay, in this race, you know how in a race, the first person who crosses the line wins? In this race, the last person who crosses the line wins. And this is a slow race. And you have to be moving the whole time. And you have to take a full size step every time you step. And you just have to move as slowly as you can in fluid motion without just taking little little tiny like inch steps forward. It needs to be full size steps the whole way. And if I see you not moving, you're going to be out and I'll let it run for a little bit. And then invariably I end the race before everybody is across because it would take literally forever. Yeah. And then it's like, this is how slow you can go. You did not know that you could move this slow before because you never had an incentive to try to move that slow before, but this is how slow you can go. And now this is how you feel based on doing that. And that is, phenomenal because they don't they don't know uh, how slow they can go and they don't know that it's really good for them to do do you ever talk about breath work with them while they're doing that um so i have a staff member sage who does a lot of breath work um, and does breath work with the kids um i have done a lot of full sensory awareness meditations with my kids um and i'm like tom brown jr short form and stuff like that yeah as something that we'll include here and there um, and we do talk about breath as how we get ourselves centered and every time the group is starting to go out, I'm like, okay, we're going to take a gentle breath in. Like, 
and let everybody relax for a little bit. And then there's always one or two kids who go, <gasps> and I go, okay, we're going to take a gentle breath in and we'll just do that until, you know, and I'll look directly at that child without saying their name. And we're like, okay, we're all going to take a gentle breath in. And then once we've all taken some gentle breaths, we're going to move into our activity. Mm-hmm. <sighs> like, very good. Okay, yeah, let's go. I showed the kids one time. I was, I don't know what they were talking about. I think we were at the river. And they were like, I can hold my breath this long. And I told them later on, I was like, I'm going to teach you something that can get you to hold your breath like two minutes under there. And they're like, whatever, whatever. And we did the Wim Hof breathing. Mm. You ever done that? Mm-hmm. Man. And then I got them and I was like, all right, ready? Hold. After they were doing those inhales, exhales. And, and they and I, w- and I clicked a timer on and I just let them sit there and watch their held breath. And it got up to 45 seconds and they were like, just still holding their breath. And I was yeah. like, yes. I was like, because you're just oxygenating your whole body. I was like, you can you can do this. And, but it's about the mind and it's mm-hmm. about training. And they're, they went home that day and told their parents, they're like, watch this. And they like showed them this Wim Hof thing. And I was like, the next week when the parents came back, they're like, um, yeah, you blew my child's mind. They didn't, didn't think they could hold their breath for a minute and they're eight years old. And I was like, yeah, you can do anything. anything you know like you just got to try and you just got to apply yourself and so i think that's so fascinating to get them to slow down and for them to first again like you said it's you know no one's ever gotten them to do that yeah and no one's ever gotten them to pull a bow back and fling an arrow or start a fire and once it's been activated Mm -hmm. it's going to be good so do you get to do that with the parents too when they come so we do i haven't done archery with parents um, I've done bow drill fire with parents plenty, um, and done fire building plenty and, and all of that stuff. I meant um, the, um, like awareness, the breathing oh, slows, mm-hmm. you know, the um, fox walking. We talk to them about, um, full sense reawareness. I do the like very quick version of bird language where you explain the five different sounds that yeah. songbirds make and like that you're getting, this is all, this is all data that you're getting. It's not just noise. Like every yeah. other animal knows that it's data and I'm like, it's data. And that, that's a real, like, that's one of my favorite game changers for people with outdoor awareness is when you explain to them that all of this, all of this stuff that they thought was background noise that they ignored is actually filled with important information Yeah, all of the time. And that's, if you are paying attention, like it will mean something to you. And if it doesn't mean anything to you, it doesn't mean anything to you. And I could see why you would be bored outside. Right. When you see a big wall of green and you don't have any friends who are trees or plants or stuff like that. It is just a wall of green. I can see why you're bored because you don't know anything about what's going on and you hear all these noises and I'd be like, well, you know, yeah, the, the birds sound nice. Yeah. Uh, sounds not, I guess it's pretty out here, but it, once you start knowing things, it literally, your brain engages within the space. And yeah. Your brain loves, loves, loves to be able to identify anything well and you're really just bringing the world of video games to real life right like how ironic that i have to say it like that but to tell a kid that well look i do you like playing minecraft they're like yeah i'm like now we're just playing pinecraft dude like come on on. like what are you doing we're just gonna do the same exact thing we're gonna go chop wood we're gonna go punch wood we're gonna throw sticks we're gonna put things together by magical boxes like i don't care like they're good you could literally do magic out in the woods and yeah. have kids throw like a stone and a thing they carved and some rope in there and like uh, the bottom that's in the top tray right but a bottom tray there's like a complete that would be hilarious yeah. they just go bang on this thing now um i want kids to feel confident outside and i just don't know again like where is the moment in um you know, what, what is going to bring them outside? So I always relate to them and whatever they, I always ask them questions. I'm like, what do you like to do this? Way, I think we told you the story the other day about that kid in the lizard. I think it's just not like, I don't just want to catch lizards. I just want to catch. I'm like, well then go catch lizards. Yeah. What yep. are you doing? Yeah. Like, go catch. He was like, I can catch lizards. I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> so like this is, we're outside. He's like, Oh, and then we, he caught two and it was just a great day. Yep. And so, um, educators out there don't, don't, don't mistake the marks of what the kid is telling you like oh, they want to do that let them do it as long as it's within the container and it's safe right what other opportunities have you had teaching you've been teaching here in austin for a long time you ever done any travel teaching um well i i work with a, a program called fam abundance <clears throat> fan abundance fam abundance fam abundance um, and that Sounds is cool. the, yeah there's like family vacations that go on and there's parent parent developmental stuff and kid developmental stuff and 
originally involved in my involvement in that program, it was very like, like the parents are doing personal development from the like, you know, your bucket list adventures and what are your healthy habits and like that sort of stuff. What's your financial inform, you know, your financial intelligence look like? And they had the kids kind of learning uh, similar stuff, which honestly was like pulling teeth, um, trying to talk to a six year old about how they could start a business. Whoa. Um, is not, uh, it, it's difficult. To That's pull wild. Um, <laughs> Why would you do that? Um, you know, because their parents were learning it. So they wanted, they wanted to have shared experience between the, the kids and the parents, which I, is important. I guess, I guess the little um, lemonade stand thing or something comes it, to mind. Yeah. And there's, it. there's some activities that, that went really well. Um, but we're starting, we're starting to shift towards more outdoor venues and getting to do, like, I finally got to do fire with, with that group for the first time. Um, so oh, I, get I bet to do, they loved it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. That's They're like, why? There's not, you know, why aren't we doing this all the time? Right. That's, that's one of the only things um, that your brain can't accurately predict what's going to happen next is watching a fire. And that's why it's so interesting because the, the pattern is not emerging inside of your head as to where the flames lick. And that's what makes things boring is once you can accurately predict them, they become less exciting unless you're making money accurately predicting them and then they become more exciting. <laughs> uh, that but, is true. Right. Um, yeah, that is very true. But so I've done a good amount of that. Um, I have, I spent a lot of time teaching at MPSS up, up there with little different things. So for those of you who don't know, MPSS is the Maine Primitive Skills School. Yep. Maine yeah. Primitive Skills School in Augusta, Maine. Augusta, Maine. Yeah. Mike Douglas has been doing that many years. Yes, he has. How long? Um, 40? 40 years? God, he's, he's getting, he's, I guess he's pretty close to 60 at this point. Um, now, when I was there, he was... Yeah, he's getting in his late fifties at this point, and he has been a teacher of some kind since his early twenties. And he was actually a biology teacher um, before he went into doing full time like primitive skills stuff. Um, yeah. And he's been doing primitive skill stuff for his whole life. How long did he mentor you? Um, I well, he's still mentoring me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, but I would you know uh, I was when, there for a little bit less than two years, okay. um, and that was with him every day through that thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, he got to learn a lot from, uh, I was part of his first group of apprentices. So we got to back him off of a little bit of the like Marine force recon mindset where he was waking everybody up at 5am. And I think in my first, in my first three months there, we had one day off. Wow. Before we had to like sit him down and be like, Mike, <laughs> we got to take a break. It's a lot once dude. in a while. Like, we all just like timber framing and just going like, what were y'all doing? Um, so if we were not in a class, so there would be like, you know, our, our five day classes that would be going on that had students in them, whether that was awareness or tracking or earth living skills or bushcrafting something, whether that's making baskets or making mucklucks or working on bows or stuff like that on the weekends, <clears throat> we were essentially expected to be doing self-study on anything that was not uh, that was going on within classes. And then we would go on survival trips and you'd get sent out with your knife in your water bottle and see if you could stay out there for five days. And then you would come back and you'd be like, okay, what do you suck at? Mm. And you're like, well, I really had a lot of trouble making a, a water container out of pine bark that would hold anything. And you'd be like, okay, well, you know, go harvest a bunch of bark and get started on that. Nice. And you would come back and do your self-evaluation and he would be like, okay, so you're going to work on that all the time. Um, and it, it took a little bit before he relaxed and we were like human beings instead of soldiers, um, that were just like plotting on constantly. Yeah. Um, so that was the mindset he had going into it. Cause that's where he came from, but he's been doing primitive skills. Uh, uh Tom Brown Jr. Was in his boy scouts troop until Tom Brown got kicked out of his boy scouts troop, uh, for being Tom Brown. <laughs> um, and <clears throat> How old were they when they were doing that? Um, he had he, he has stories from when he was eight. There was uh, uh, one of the stories that he tells, and uh, as that they had a uh, they would do like campfire stalks with Tom Brown, and the campfire stalk is like there's a campfire in the middle, and then you have to try to sneak up and get to the campfire, and there's people who are standing right next to the campfire trying to point people out. Oh yeah, yeah, and stalkers if, and watchers. Yeah, I know that game. If they're wrong, they have to turn around and stare into the fire yeah. for thirty seconds, so on and so forth. And Tom Brown wouldn't point people out. And this is according to Mike. I was not, I was not there. So this is not my story. Um, but he wouldn't point people out. He would take, <clears throat> he would take um, like metal nuts, like half inch nuts or like three eighths of an inch nuts and shoot them at kids out of a wrist rocket. And we're like, 
Tom would shoot kids? How old was Tom? Um, I mean, this would have this been was, so when you this say would have been Mike, thirty-five years ago. So you're saying Mike and Tom were in the same Boy Scout troop? They were the no, same. Eight. Tom is older than Mike. So oh, Tom! God. It was it was a younger Tom Brown who was yeah. doing that. Sure, but still older than Mike. So Tom was an adult who was in the program, and Mike was a child who was in the program. Got it. Um, okay. So that, that was, makes sense. That was his. Coyote air quotes. Uh, Ouch. Yeah. Getting shot with bolts, yeah. huh? Make the kids really learn to hide. I'm like, great job, Tom. Ouch. Um, I could see it being a Nerf ball. Yeah. But obviously, Nerf balls didn't exist, but like something yeah. else than yeah. a mm-hmm. bolt. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been hit yeah. with a bolt before like that. Yeah. <laughs> it stings. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's an interesting story. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know anything like that would exist. You know, honestly, though, I can see Tom doing that. Uh-huh. Like, truthfully. Yeah. I can see yep. him totally doing that. Um, not because, you know, he's evil, but I'm sure because that's him, how he did it. Yeah. It was I'm like sure he would mess with you It like was that. the best educational idea he had ever had. Yeah. And he was in that like, moment. I'm going to learn these kids how to stay <laughs> hidden from me creeping up on this campfire. And, you know, <laughs> you're going to learn today. Um, I'm like... Just, That's hilarious. You know, uh, I can't imagine that being something that somebody did imagine today hit me um, <laughs> without going to jail. Yeah, you would. That's, You'd be you're going, reprimanded in some way. Uh, yeah, I'm. You know, uh, yeah. No, Good there's Lord. no way you would get could do the, get that done today. No, but that, you know, and it's like it's I don't so, know what part of your brain story, yeah. is missing. To be like, this is a really good idea. Everything about this idea is just, just well, stellar. Because you got to acknowledge too, they're crawling on the ground face forward. Uh-huh. So if you sting yeah. them, mm-hmm. you know you could get the cheek or the chin There's or all like outside of like the potential risk of what could go wrong. <laughs> the like not not having the part of your brain where you're like, oh, this is violence against children. Um, <laughs> Like, you know, there's like setting up difficult circumstances and, and uh, kinesthetic feedback for learning. And then there's shooting kids with metal. Right. Um, right. You know? It's clearly a if, big line. Right. <laughs> and if it was like a soft thing, you could be like, okay, this is kinesthetic feedback. They don't want to get hit by the thing. But not like that level of danger is not healthy danger. That's not that's not risky play. Yeah. That's just a... Did Mike ever get beamed with one of those things? <clears throat> yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, what a story. Mm-hmm. Got beamed That's, by a Yeah, he had, he had one where um, he realized that Tom saw him <clears throat> before Tom had called him. So he got up and started trying to run away to jump behind a tree. Oh. And Tom caught him in the back of the leg, and he just, like, spun around and hit his head and hit the ground. Um, you know? And Jeez. it was like, it hurt for a week. Jesse, um, now I'm curious. Like, what did Mike's parents say about that? Were they like, ah, ha, 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 that's how you learn. But, you Take know, us all, I, tablet. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <clears throat> but yeah, he uh, he went from doing that, and then he went into the military to learn more survival skills, like stuff like Tom Brown was teaching him. And then, you know, while he was there, he learned that it was a very different format of survival skills. Yeah, very different. Military survival skills are about extracting yourself from a very dangerous situation. It's yeah, not quickly. about the sort of thrival, like moving in and being a part of the landscape sort of thing, because those people are trained for contingencies for situations where they're in enemy territory right. and they need to get out. Right. Like, it's more of a rescue mission. Right. You're yeah, trying to be sure. as stealthy as possible and you need to get to your extraction point and that is what they need to know. Right. Um, but it is not the same as like a primitive skills practitioner. Right. Yeah. Know? Bushcraft in the UK is like, th- that's what they call like hanging out in the woods and survival skills in mm-hmm. the UK is like, that's for the army. Mm-hmm. So I like that they have a very clear yeah. distinguishing uh, thing, but I guess, you know, here in America, we just, you know, I don't know. Primitive skills is what we would refer to it as, yeah. but I like that it's, um, gotten such a fantastic amount of growth. I mean, I see Mike's posts on Instagram and uh, Facebook all the time. And I mean, he's just up there just doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, MPSS is just always killing it, whether it's the apprenticeship program or classes they're doing. And um, it's, it's, I don't know. I just feel good when I know my mentors are like still just going strong yeah. out there. Like I am. Yeah. It feels good. Yeah. He's, he's had his ups and his downs and, and all that stuff. Things are going pretty, pretty well up there presently. It is uh, interesting to watch him get uh, get older and figure out like where he's moving on his wheel and mm-hmm. where he can put his energy and that you know he can't uh, the <clears throat> the first time I was at that school 
um, doing the Earth Living Weekend, on the first night, we did a drum stalk. Uh, so if you don't know a drum stalk, you put on a blindfold, you get dropped off in the woods, and then someone plays a drum, and you have to make your way to the drum. So I'm making my way back to the drum, and I keep hearing, like, shuffling near me. And what I think is going on, because Demoro is the only, is one of, is the only apprentice at the school at that point, or maybe it was him and Evan. Um, but I assume that my best friend is following me to like watch me do whatever I'm doing um, because he was not, he was helping, you know, he wasn't participating in the drum stock. And I was like, oh, Demora's following me. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and I'm getting closer. And at some point, the rhythm of the drum changed like pretty significantly. Um, I'm gonna get closer and I'm getting closer. And then I just hear all of these footfalls and thumps and big rustles and stuff like that. And then it gets quiet. And then the drum plays a couple more times and I, I'm walking up and I get poked in the shoulder and I take off my bandana and Mike Douglas is sitting there holding the drum and he's like, okay, good journal. And tomorrow's brother Greg is standing there and his just eyes are wide. Um, and he looks at me and goes, do you have any idea what just happened? And I was like, no, what just happened, Greg? Or, you know, I walked through the woods. I, I was know, blindfolded the whole no, time. I was blindfolded, so, you know. <laughs> and we're walking back and he goes, so I got back first. And he sat me down in the chair and gave me the drum and he took my blindfold and put the blindfold on and then ran into the woods wearing the blindfold. And then he heard you getting close and with his blindfold still on, he sprinted through the woods. He jumped over a tree and then spun around another one, did a somersault on the ground, popped up next to me, took off the blindfold, handed it to me, took the drum and sat down in the chair and then like hit the drum a couple more times and poked you. Um, he ran out there to mess with you? Uh, no, he ran out there to do the drum stock himself. Oh, I was, I was like, wait. Yeah, he, no, he, he wanted to go do his own drum stock, and then he also wanted to be the one in the chair when I returned. Wow. So that he could give the direction, and then he realized I was getting too close to the drum, so he had to go get over there before I saw, like, whatever was going on <laughs> in the background. Um <laughs> How did he know? How did he know he's going to take that long? I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't Man, know. he just he heard me and was and was there. I'm going to try to do that to the teens next time. Uh, he can <laughs> like, you know, at, at this point he's he's learning to try to do that stuff less. But he, you know, he was a he was a Marine Force Recon, super in shape, very athletic sort of dude for a long time. And then as he got older, and um, I, I love you, Mike, fatter. Um, um, he, he had to learn that his body was not capable of doing the things that it, that it used to do. So it's yeah. been, it's been interesting to watch it. I sort of, I, I got to be there for towards the beginning of those realizations taking place. And it's been, um, wonderful to watch him, uh, mature a little bit more as, as he gets closer to 60. Yeah. Um, but yeah, MPSS was awesome. That was a really good time. Um, especially once we started having like days off and stuff. Um, but it was like being in an, an adult playground, <clears throat> especially during the winter when there was less classes, I would wake up and be like, am I going to work on doing friction fire in the snow today? Or am I going to work on my bow today? Or maybe I'll just track snowshoe hairs for the next three hours. And I would wake up and walk around in the woods. There was, uh, I followed a, uh, a partridge trail for, for four and a half hours one day. And then at the end of it, it was just gone and I couldn't figure out what happened for the life of me. And I went, I, I brought him out there and he was like, well, you see right here, these are the wing marks from when it took off. Yep. Flew uh, away. Yep. Something probably spooked it right there. Cause I was following these footprints, following yeah. these footprints. Then it was just gone four those, hours. Those wing marks are awesome, yep. man. Yep. You see those in the snow. Those are such good mysteries for people to discover. And, uh, I'm glad that, yeah, you got to do all of that with him and just bring all of that, awareness training and um you'd mentioned a gentleman what was his name ira what? ira ira, ira issued and he's still he's still with us so he is oh yeah ira's uh ira's a young guy he's in a well he's in his 40s at this point um and he is a principal at school in maine Vassalboro at this point he's he keeps getting moved around because he's very good at his job and new places want him to come out and oh, stuff yeah. like that. reestablish everything um, sure and he has he you know he has great primitive skills and stuff like that. But his specialty is very much in how you be when you are with the kids. Mm-hmm. And that's also where my yeah. specialty is as someone who learned directly from him about how to be when you're with the kids. Like that is the part where I shine. 
Yeah. That's, there's tons of people that have bushcraft skills. There's tons of people that have survival skills. I'm, you know, I'm somewhere in the middle of the pack of people who are dedicated and passionate about learning all that stuff. Like I am not a better bushcraft practitioner than many, many people that I know, but I am a very, very, very good educator and I am very, very good at supporting children in their growth. Yeah. And that is where I hang my hat. Yeah. Well, I can attest to that because all of uh, Natureversity staff uh, use Braden. Well, not use Braden, but, you know, we utilize Braden, Braden's gifts of being such a, farm, uh, a fantastic educator and facilitator. And uh, I want anyone out there who uh, works with kids to know, like, if, you, if you're here in Austin or the Central Texas area, I'm sure Braden will be happily to come visit your staff and help give them all the skills that I now love and continuously use. Even, even though what's funny is even though you've taught me all this stuff, I still feel like them hearing it from you, it makes, it makes it all the better. You know, they love when I bring Cameron still is like, man, yeah, Brayden's coming in. He's so, he always pumps up the other staff about it. He's like, you're going to love this guy. He's amazing. And I was like, but yeah, I was like, wait till you actually get to see him work with kids. It's really fantastic to hear what he has to say. I was like, but when you work alongside him, it's, it's really awesome. So yeah. And anything else, um, we're, we're rolling up on an hour now and I don't know if you got to get anywhere, but I, I, you know, what's funny is we did this a lot without the podcast. Uh, those of y'all who were listening, Braden yeah. and I, and we would sit at uh, Dreamland. What is it called? Uh, Graceland. Graceland. I always call it, yeah. I always call it Dreamland. It's Graceland over there on uh, Highway 71. And uh, we would just, or is it 290? It's 290. It's oh, right it's, after, it's right yeah, after it's the split. It's a 290 yeah. split, whatever. It, they closed it off now. You can't even get to it from That's, the highway. You got to get all. The, the right turn is further up. I, what I happened? I missed my turn to go into work like three times. Oh. The Cedars over there, uh, you know. Uh, eventually, I bet they're I'm sure angry. Yeah, I bet. You got to take that super scenic route to even get to their store now. Yeah. There should be some lawsuits. Um, anyway, we would sit there and chat for hours, Braden and I. And I thought to myself one time, I was like, dude, we should put this all in recording. And I remember making a joke to Braden yeah. about it. And so we finally sat down and we've done one. I want to have you back on because I still have a million and one questions I want to ask you. We did not get to working with corporations and opportunities there and, um, uh, you know, teacher training and different things that you're offering and the work at home study program for kids in nature, the survival thing, fire scouts we briefly touched on. So I want to have you back, man. Yeah, sweet. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's well, do it. thank you all for uh, tuning in and we'll see you next week. Everybody. Goodbye. Thanks, y'all.